Welcome to the History of Eye Care, the podcast that takes a deep dive into the evolution of modern eye care. We'll hear the stories of today's thought leaders, innovators, and legends. By exploring the past, we can better shape the future. From anterior segment and refractive surgery to retina, plastics, and glaucoma, no part of eye care's rich history will be left in the dark. Here's your host, Dr. Morgan Micheletti, an eye surgeon and curious historian who is ready to uncover the landmark moments and untold stories that have revolutionized eye care. Let's dive in. Hello, listeners. Welcome back to another episode of the History of Eye Care. I'm your host, Dr. Morgan Micheletti, here to guide you on another exciting journey through the modern history of our field. Today, we're truly privileged to have with us an exceptional surgeon who has significantly contributed and really raised awareness of how we treat ocular surface interior film prior to surgery. She's routinely on the ophthalmology power list, has won the Visionary Leaders Award. She serves on uh, boards of directors. She's a chief medical officer, chief medical advisor, and she's helped co-found a nonprofit organization called the American College of Eye Technicians. She's also a recent uh, president of the American College of Eye Surgeons. And she founded her practice back in 1987, which is a great year. It happens to be the year I was born. And she grew it into a very successful organization. And so with that, I'm really excited to welcome Dr. Cynthia Matosian to the History of Eye Care podcast. Cynthia, it's a pleasure to have you here today with us. Thank you so much for joining. Morgan, thank you for inviting me. And I'm delighted to be here. I'm so thrilled that you've started this podcast because there's so much that we do in ophthalmology and the pace at which this field moves is extremely fast. So I'm so happy you're capturing past memories so that in the future, people can see and hear what we used to do. Absolutely. And I'm really, I mean, this all started because I'm curious myself, but I really feel like a lot of those in my generation just don't know. We don't know where we came from. And it's tough to really see how, you know, why are we where we are today without looking back and really diving into to how we got here. And so with that, why don't you tell us a little bit about how you got here? I mean, you started your practice in 1987, but take us all the way back. When did you first get involved in, in medicine and, and ophthalmology and, and kind of your medical journey? It's never a straight track. All of us have circuitous paths to get to where we've gotten. And mine is pretty circuitous as well, with lots of curves here and turns there. And I am so happy that I found ophthalmology and that it found me because it's a field that I'm passionate about. So how did it all start? I went to medical school. And in medical school, we had opportunities to rotate through different subspecialties. But actually, I went to medical school to be an ophthalmologist. So I had that figured out ahead of time. Why did I do that? Well, you know, I'm somewhat organized, (laughs) as most of us are in ophthalmology. And I had very specific criteria that I kind of looked at. And I said, okay, once I get into medical school and start my rotations, I'll see if what fields and if these criteria are achievable. One was I wanted a happy field. I knew I could not be in a field like oncology or pediatric oncology was one bad news after another. The second, which was very important for me, was a combination of surgery and clinical in-office patient care. And very few fields 
kind of give equal importance to the in-office versus in the OR emphasis. Dermatology is one, certain types of dermatology, not all, and ophthalmology is great at that. Whereas some fields are strictly in the OR, you rarely see all your patients and don't develop a rapport with them. And then I wanted a field where we could see men and women, young and old, because to me, diversity was important, not just OB, let's say, where it was all female, something like that. So I whittled it down to ophthalmology and I said, okay, I'm going to see if that field is going to make me happy. And indeed, you know, it's been the best decision I've made to go into this incredibly rewarding field. That's awesome. So once you started, you know, tell us a little bit about residency. I mean, what were things like when you were in residency? I mean, how did y'all go about, you know, prepping the ocular surface? Was there prepping the ocular surface and, and IOL calculations? I mean, what was it like? Take us back. It's in the dark ages. Actually, they were doing extra caps. Actually, even more than that, some of the attendings at George Washington University in Washington, D.C. were doing intra caps. They would use alpha chymotrypsin injected into the anterior chamber and then use a sable brush, a brush made out of actual animal hair that somehow, I don't know how, was sterilized and it was reused repeatedly. And it would like paint the alpha chymotrypsin onto the zonules and it dissolved. It's an enzymatic dissolver of the zonules. And then you would have this frozen probe, almost like an ice cream scoop, but like frozen. You would touch it onto the anterior capsule and then pluck the entire lens out. That was an intracap. Of course, Vitrius came out with it. Most of the time, not all the time, but most of the time. That was part of the procedure. So I witnessed that my first year when I just started to watch surgery. And then soon it was a conversion into extra caps, the can opener capsulotomy and delivering of the lens, extra cap. And that was a big thing to go from intra cap to extra cap. Of course, with extra cap, the incisions were very large. We would put in, gosh, six, seven, eight sutures. And, um, you know, that's how I learned how to suture. I had to do a lot of suturing for my attendings. And then gradually, after I graduated from residency, I taught myself through attending classes and skill transfer courses and going to different symposia on how to do FACO. And back in the day also, Morgan, you might find this crazy. When we used to put, finally, you know, with the extra caps, we had one piece, like, or actually three-piece lenses, which we would put in. That was a big thing, not an AC lens, but a PC lens. Of course, some patients develop a posterior capsular opacification. We didn't have a YAG laser. So we had to take them back to the OR, make an incision, like a pars plana incision, and using like a, a sharp instrument with the point up, open the capsule going underneath the capsule or going underneath the IOL and ripping the capsule open. It was the only way we could do a capsulotomy. That's really interesting to think about. I mean, you think about, you know, something we really take for granted. I mean, I, I take for granted is doing a YAG capsulotomy. I mean, I did a whole bunch today and I can't even imagine being, you know, 
taking all those patients to the OR to to actually go parse plane and, and remove that. And open or go whittle your way in underneath the optic and then open it. You figure out a way to do it. And then you would like do a cruciate way or whatever design you wanted. Sometimes it would just split from the tension and then it would open up and you'd come out really fast before the vitreous followed you. <laughs> but that's how it was. But then soon, I want to say in my four, last year of residency, we got a YAG laser and Dr. Aaron Rosa was very big. She was traveling the globe doing electrics on. You don't have to take your patients back to the OR. You can do this incredible in-office procedure to clear the capsule. That's really mind-blowing. I mean, I, you know, I never really thought about that. I mean, I always just, you just think that, oh, the YAG capsulotomy, yeah, that's always been there. You know, we, we did cataract surgery, you know, yeah, we do YAG capsulotomy, but, but no, that's really like, that was two separate developments. And really, obviously the advancement of intraocular lens technology and fake emulsification prompted the advancement of YAG because there wasn't a reason to do that without cataract surgery wasn't something that it was something while a lot of people needed. It wasn't something we could do and bring to the masses back then, right? Because I mean, what was it like for patients back then to undergo cataract surgery? You had to have a real cataract. You know, these were not your slight difficulty driving at night. First, that lights we didn't have halogen lights back then. The night driving, night headlights were not as bright. And um, that wasn't even a consideration. So it was really the more advanced cataracts who would come to us for cataract surgery. And we were in a very cosmopolitan setting in Washington, D.C. So it wasn't like a rural environment. But we waited till the cataracts were pretty advanced, quote unquote, ripe to do the procedure. But once we started doing extra caps, the surgical time sped up. We were getting better results. Then we started offering this option for less dense lenses. And talk about the IL technology uh, kind of along the journey. Did you feel like there was a certain point, maybe it was in the surgery, maybe it wasn't even the ILs, but I think they kind of go hand in hand. Did you feel like there was a certain point where there was just a huge shift in the way we, we approached the patients with cataracts. Well, first, you know, the mentality was remove a diseased part of the eye and replace it with something because the lens was so opaque. So we would replace it with a clear lens. The concept of improving visual refractive error improving astigmatism did not exist at all. If anything, we gave people astigmatism because of the number of sutures we were putting in. And it takes a while for somebody to learn how to titrate the suture tension to kind of make it equalize and not give somebody iatrogenic astigmatism. So people were used to really crazy refractive errors after cataract surgery. Partly, it was all the suturing, the large incision. Partly, it was the way we were doing our biometry. It was contact biometry. It was truly the A-scans where we would like pummel the cornea with the tip of our biometer until we got the readings. And we didn't know about the surfaces back then. And, you know, I used to do my own biometry. So I really learned how to read all the different spikes, how wide the lens was, how big it was, told me how much time I would have to 
to spend in the OR, you know, because it meant it was a very dense lens. And that's how it all started. Clearly, we were not tuning up the surface and we were probably not getting great readings, but it was the best tool we had. And there was only like one or two different lens options. We didn't have anything like the array of options we have right now. So when you think back on just kind of refractive cataract surgery, do you remember your first toric lens? You know, I remember my first multifocal lens. Actually, I used that before the toric lens because we had the resume and we had the array. Those I used before the torx to think about it. And people have forgotten about those lenses. So I was an early adopter back then and I was using those lenses. They did not cost more for the patient. There was no out-of-pocket cost. And I was using them. And then crystal lens came out, an accommodative lens. I started using that. And then uh, the toric version of the accommodative lens came out. And concurrently, other, you know, a single piece or three piece torx came out. There were plate haptic lenses too that I used to use. Just for some of our listeners, can you remind or, or even enlighten us as to what some of those early lenses were? I mean, what, what was the technology behind like the array? And obviously the, the crystal lens is a pseudo accommodating lens and the resume, if my if memory serves me, was a zonal refractive lens. What, what was the array? I don't, I don't know much about the array. It was also a zonal lens that helped with distance and near. Intermediate was not such a big focus because computers were not such a big part of our daily lives like they are right now. We didn't have cell phones back then. We didn't really have laptops back then. We had the big clunky computers. And I remember the very first day, like when I opened my own office. It was back in the era where computers looked like big toaster ovens and we had to feed green and white striped paper into the computer for it to print. And that was how we did our scheduling. And it was very avant-garde and cutting edge to have that computer for scheduling purposes. Before that, people would write it in a hardbound book, you know, or a spiral bound notebook where you could erase. So you always made the schedules in pencil. So if somebody canceled, you could just erase. That's awesome. And you know, it's funny having grown up in the nineties, I mean, I remember going into my dad's office and those printers would sound so cool. There's just a, there's a special sound to those, <laughs> to those early nineties printers. That I'll never forget. I mean, it's something that I don't think a lot of people probably remember now, but I remember it as a kid because I thought it was the coolest thing. That's awesome. Now, when did you feel like the ocular surface, and you can say forever and always, but when did you feel like the ocular surface in terms of our surgical planning, when did that start to become important? And when was it apparent to you that that is something that really had to be optimized to get the best results? I would say for me, it was pretty early on because I used to, when we got topographers, We didn't have topographers back then. We just had keratometers. When we got topographers and I started to see the Myers and how erratic the Myers looked, how wavy some of those circles were or missing or warped, I knew clearly that was the tear film. So that's kind of when I started to connect the dots and say, okay, 
maybe we need to start something. And what I started to do is when the patients decided to go forward with cataract surgery and the decision was made that surgery would help them, I would bring them back for their pre-surgical testing. This way I could control my flow of patients. It wasn't just add on biometry after biometry, because back then biometry took a long time. It wasn't as quick as, you know, what we have right now. So I would tell my patients to start using artificial tears, QID, up until their biometry visit. And then I started to see the improved Myers. And I said, wow, this is making a difference. And that's all I did for many, many years. The concept of tuning up the surface still didn't exist. It wasn't till I want to say 20 maybe years ago or so when Restasis first came to market and that was the first cyclosporin that we had to help with dry eye, to help with ocular surface inflammation, that kind of that started the trend very gradually and the uptake was like molasses, very slow. So walk me through some of that. So, you know, we talked about, you mentioned cyclosporine derivatives and restasis. Before that, what, what were we doing? I mean, what, what were ophthalmologists using to optimize the surface? Just artificial tears. That's all we had. We had tears and we had artificial tear ointment, which we use for people who had like Bell's palsy or lagophthalmos or something like that. Those were our only choices. Was anyone using uh, steroids at all in any way? We didn't really use it much. It wasn't the standard of care to use for ocular surface inflammation. Of course, we used it. We used it for uveitis, anterior chamber inflammations, but it wasn't really the standard or the mindset to use steroids for mild ocular surface inflammatory processes. So really it was restasis coming out that just kind of changed the game. And then steroids were added because they worked so well together. One was to kind of jumpstart and help fight the inflammation right away. And then you stop the steroid after a few weeks and then you kept going with the restasis or the cyclosporin of, it was the only cyclosporin back then because it used to burn quite a bit. And it was a way to help patients kind of onboard the medication with the least amount of side effects. So they would stay compliant. So when you think about refractive surgery, not just IOL based, but just any refractive surgery, in the journey of the patient, at what point, when did you realize, I mean, not just for IOL surgery, but for just any surgery or even just your, your standard dry eye patient. I mean, can you walk me through a little bit beyond just restasis, but really, cause you dove in so deep into dry eye and, and really taking care of the patient. I mean, when did all that really start? I mean, when did you have that kind of aha moment that that's just, we've got to address this. I'm so glad you answered, you asked that question, Morgan, because it was really through my patients' journeys that I got my aha moment. These were patients who truly were vagabonds. They were going from doctor to doctor to doctor, hoping that somebody would listen to them and somebody could give them relief. They were really, really suffering. So number one, it made me a really good listener. Number two, it made me ask questions 
in order to elicit a history because patients didn't even realize some of the experiences that they were having had anything to do with dry eye. They don't know in order for them to even share it with a doctor or the technician who was, you know, preparing the patient for me entering the room. And when through the various treatments that I would come up with and curate for each patient, and it's not cookie cutter with dry eye, everybody is very different. And you really have to customize their treatment. For one person, could be very, very aggressive. For another, very mild. And for the third person, somewhere in between. And when they would come back, they would have the smile. They would bring me cookies. They would knit little booties for my daughter. They would bring me flowers because they were the most grateful of patients to say, finally, I have relief. I don't feel like I have broken glass in my eye. I don't have to think about my eyes as much. And they were really unbelievably grateful patients, almost to this, like almost equal in like the late post LASIK. It's an wow. You know, I can see far. I never used to be able to. After presbyopia correcting or astigmatism correcting lenses, they're, wow, my world, I don't have to rely on glasses as much. Whereas with a dry eye patients, it's true pain relief. These are people with chronic pain. And I was able to help them without opioids, you know, deal with their chronic pain. Now, if you think back over the course of your career, did you have any, was there any one mentor or a collection of mentors that you had that helped guide you along this path? Mentorship has become a lot more prominent recently. It wasn't so common at all back in the day when I was a resident or starting my practice. Actually, back then, A, there weren't very many women in ophthalmology. Two, there were very, very few women who were um, practice owners or who started their own practice. So we were a real minority, probably a handful. The other women ophthalmologists I knew were primarily in academia or teaching institutions, places like that. So I didn't have many mentors. The only woman figure out there was Marguerite McDonald. And she was, of course, very visible because LASIK was coming in. She was lecturing all over about LASIK and the surface of the eye and these, this incredible new procedure. So she was really my only female mentor. But so many of my male colleagues were there too. I learned from them. I would ask them for help. They helped me out. So it was really the community was there from the get-go. But I did not have a direct mentor that I can say he or she was my mentor. It was the aggregate ophthalmology community. And like you said, that is that is so different nowadays. I mean, now I'm sure you've served as a mentor to countless young physicians, which is amazing. We all, we all thank you for that mentorship. Speaking of kind of mentorship, tell me a little bit of, I mean, mentorship and, and really kind of leading the charge. Tell me a little bit about ACEs because ACEs is a society, right? The American College of Eye Surgeons or of Eye Surgeries. You know, it's very rare standards and you have to do a lot to actually be accepted into the society. Can, can you talk a little bit about ACEs and, and kind of the role it played in your journey? 
One of the proudest moments is when I was ACES certified. It's American College of Eye Surgeons. And then there's a certification process. It's the American ABES, American Board of Eye Surgery. And the way it works back in the day, again, I'm dating myself. Clearly, this is the history of ophthalmology we're talking about. Very few doctors were viewing lens-based surgery as something to improve the patient's vision instead of just replacing a, let's say, cloudy body part. We can improve the patient's vision and actually make them see better than they were prior to surgery. Very, very few surgical procedures in medicine today can say that. So early on, I was an early adopter and I was doing small incision surgery. I was using FACO. I was using every lens that was available and FDA approved. So the way ACES certification worked is that you had to video. Even videoing surgery was not common at all. So you had to video 50 consecutive cases. You could not stop. You could not cherry pick your cases. It was every case, 50 in a row, had to be videoed. And then you would write a whole document of each case, pre-op, post-op, case, incision, IOLs used, surgical planning. And you'd submit a tome to the American Board of Eye Surgeons. They would review it and then somebody would fly out to the OR. They would video your hands doing the surgery and they would play that video clip to the board so they would not know who the surgeon was, two gloved hands doing surgery. And if they saw good hand technique, good surgical technique, good surgical outcomes in that 50 consecutive surgical series, then you could become a ABES or American Board of Eye Surgery, a certified cataract surgeon. And I still have my plaque (laughs) because very few of us actually achieved that or had the inertia to go through that rigorous requirement to get to that level. That's very rigorous. And I think, what was the reason? What was the impetus to do that? Was it just to really drive just excellence and and maintain a certain standard of care for those FACO surgeons who were kind of advancing the field? That's definitely part of it. Part of it was also to set myself apart in my community to say, I do cataract surgery and think about it in a different way than the average cataract surgeon, because I can include different procedures to help deliver the best outcome for each patient. So it was all of the above. So tell me, you're involved in, again, numerous things. Tell me about this nonprofit you helped start. This is so cool. I mean, this is this is about technicians. I think that's awesome. Tell me about that. Well, now I am in season two of my career. That's what I'm calling it. And I'm loving it. And part of it is to give back to my community of ophthalmologists. So the one repeated theme I hear wherever I am, any 50 states, Hawaii to Florida, the recurrent theme is shortage of staff. There are phenomenal training programs out there. Jacopo is there. Uh, Mitch Schultz has a great program. Alchemy Vision Project. All of those, we are 100% supportive of. 
What we don't have, what's new with the American College of Eye Technicians, is that it's a recruitment program. It's the widest part of the funnel. We are working with higher education recruiting companies. These are companies that recruit for junior colleges, online colleges, et cetera. And they are recruiting adult learners for us. They come into the fold of American College of Eye Technicians. We have a very, very preliminary eight-week, two-hours-a-week kind of foundational training like ODOS, OU, you know, basic spelling, disease states, anatomy of the eye. And then we're starting to place them into practices who need technicians. So they have very foundational knowledge. We don't purport that they know that much. They've never had hands-on experience, but at least we're bringing de novo adult learners into the field in order to expand the number of technicians we have in the field of ophthalmology. Looking back on eye technicians, for example, I mean, let, can we talk about the history of, of that field for a second? Because I don't really know too, too much about, but thinking back to when you first got started, I mean, what, what was the role of the eye technician? Were there, was, an, was there an abundant number of, of these professionals out there at the time compared to how it is now? Were they more skilled then? Are they more skilled now? I mean, I'm, I'm curious. It was, again, a very different era because we didn't have many diagnostic pieces of equipment for which we needed technicians. We had visual fields. So that was the biggest thing where technicians were needed. Of course, the working up of the patient, but then the workup was visual acuity with a Snell and chart, and that was it, not even computerized. And lastly, it was, of course, checking vision, you know, and then that was basically it. And then biometry was done initially by the doctors because it was a brand new piece of equipment. And then it was delegated to senior technicians, but there were no other things to do. And as the field of diagnostics expanded, and as the number of tests that we now do for our patients grew, we needed more and more staff in order to perform these different tests, whether it's in retina, fluorescein, angiography. Of course, fundus photography existed back then with fluorescenes, but usually they had fundus photographers who were accredited who did that. They weren't regular technicians. So the technicians dilated eyes. That was kind of part of what they did. And then the refractions were either done by optometrists or ophthalmologists. There weren't very many technicians refracting back in the day, very few. It really is amazing how far that field has come, you know, that profession has come because we're, we're really dependent on our technicians now to provide care to, to so many patients, right? I mean, it's, it's tough to imagine seeing the, the number of patients we need to see in order to take care of our population uh, without the help of our technicians. So I applaud you for really taking that upon yourself and, and forming a society that, you know, a nonprofit that helps to kind of recruit and get more people into the field. If you had to think about one thing that you contributed, that you brought to ophthalmology, optometry, eye care as a whole, what, what do you feel is your greatest contribution to all of us? That's a very big question. <laughs> you know, I feel so humble in that I'm in this field 
and I have wonderful friends and so many connections. But I would say if I had to highlight one area, it would be the focus on the tear film pre-surgically in order to get the exquisite results that we all promise our patients and that they expect from us. So a skilled surgeon can be incredibly skilled, but if the data that's collected pre-surgery is not reliable due to surface abnormalities or a dysregulated tear film, then regardless of how advanced that IOL formula is that he or she is using, you may just have that refractive mess. We want to avoid that. So tune up the surface and then do your measurements. And I think everybody will be happier. So now let's, let's do it. Let's, let's pivot a little more. So meetings are such, you know, I mean, I feel like I can find a meeting to go to every single weekend of the year. (laughs) in our field. It's truly astounding. Is that new? It was so different. So different, Morgan. First, there were less meetings and then everybody went to those meetings. So that's where you connected. That's where you got your newest research, your newest kind of products on the floor. You would see them and play with them and touch them and get to do a wet lab, possibly depending on what it was. We also read journals. They were on paper, glossy paper with, you know, good quality paper because we didn't have all the digital media to which we've become so accustomed right now. Now we have a plethora of meetings. Sometimes the same information is shared at these different meetings because they are so frequent. Like you said, there really, I think, is a meeting every weekend and sometimes even more than one meeting. Especially if you include the optometric meetings, they too have exploded. So there is a lot of information that is reshared at these meetings because not everybody goes to the big meeting like back in the day. AAO was it. That was the big meeting. I always made it a point to go to that. And then ASCRS came along and then these smaller organizations and then meetings that were very charming and small like Hawaiian Eye now have mushroomed into multi-specialty, retina, cornea, neuro-ophthalmology, et cetera, and they continue to grow. And I think what's happening is that people are selecting the meetings now to go to based on time of year, based on their schedule and availability, maybe the schedule of their family members, children, school, that sort of thing. And there's a lot more flexibility in which meetings to go to, and you're not going to miss out anything because you can get it all online. Right. And so basically as the ability and the availability of information online and, and to be readily at our at our fingertips has improved, the need to go to just one or two meetings or this meeting or that meeting has really kind of decreased. And now there are, there are more meetings so that you can kind of select, you know, what do you want to go to? What are you going to have the most fun at? Where do your friends go? Which is also very, it's just very interesting, right? It's, it's just very different than necessarily what, what we might expect. You mentioned the the optometry meeting. So thinking about optometrists and their role in, in kind of eye care, I mean, it's truly, I, mean, I, I cannot imagine doing what I do without the partnership that, that I have with all of the optometrists that are in my practice, 
mean, I rely on them and, and I like to think they rely on me as well to really kind of complete the package of, of patient care. How have you seen that evolve just over the last 30 years or so? That relationship has evolved tremendously as well. When I started, there were two factions and there was very little overlap. The Venn diagram did not really exist. It was two circles, really almost no overlap in the middle. I was one of the early integrators of optometrists within our practice because I saw their role for the patient. It made the most sense to have that comprehensive approach. Optometrists had so many skill sets, which I didn't have. And of course, I had skill sets that they didn't have. Together, the package was best for the patient. And to this day, I'm a big believer in that. And I think working together, we can each work at our highest skill set and deliver the best for every one of our patients. But there was a lot of animosity back in the day. There were people who were very much against optometrists coming into ophthalmology practices and starting to do medical, quote unquote, eye care. They were viewed as only glasses and contact lenses. They can do so much more. And I think that that's, that's been key to really, I mean, it, look, there's 4.6 million cataract surgeries that are done every year in the United States. That number has to grow if we're going to continue to take care of our population. I think the only way we as ophthalmologists should be able to do that is to really rely on our optometry colleagues to help. You know, I mean, we, it's the only way we're going to be able to take care of this, this whole population. I think that's what's so cool about our field in eye care. I don't know that there's another field in medicine that has such a large team. So many moving components from technicians, nurses, right? Diagnostic techs. I mean, that, those are two separate, very separate things to optometrists and ophthalmologists, to scribes and, you know, surgical techs, surgical schedulers, surgical counselors. And we have, I mean, you know, it's truly amazing just the team that's behind all of the care we provide. So we talked a lot about, about the past. So now let's, let's talk prospectively here for a few minutes. If you had to give advice to someone who's optometrist, ophthalmologist, anywhere in the field of eye care or interested in the field of eye care, do you have any just pearls or wisdom that you would share with them given all of your experience? I would say be kind because the field of ophthalmology is very small and everybody knows everybody. So being kind and respectful of your colleagues, whether they're an ophthalmologist, an optometrist, or somebody in industry, because you never know how and when your paths will cross again. One guarantee is they will cross again. So I think just keeping that in mind, our, our sphere is diverse, but yet small, and therefore being considerate will go a very long way. I think that's a great insight. So. You're involved with a lot of different companies. So can you speak a little bit to industry and how important industry's role is advancing eye care and the partnership that has to occur between physicians and industry in order to advance eye care? Because you're involved with a lot of different companies and I think that's great. I think it's something important to highlight. Industry and ophthalmology need to coexist not in separate silos. They truly have to be part and parcel of 
a product with multiple ways that they connect together. Industry doesn't understand exactly what we need without us being verbal in a clear way and communicate our vision, our needs, a different way of doing surgery, maybe a different way of approaching an eon old eye problem. And then they take that idea with our input, maybe our collaboration, and then come up with maybe version two or version eight or a completely new product. And then it comes back to us. So it's this yin and yang that goes back and forth. We trial the product. We say, no, it's too bulky. No, ergonomically, it doesn't fit the hands. No, it's taking too long or whatever. It might be too many touch points. You know, throughput is too long. We need to shorten the, the whole process. Whatever input, it goes back and forth. It is a true collaboration. And then we get the next version until it's a fine-tuned either diagnostic piece of equipment or a new IOL or a new glaucoma product, whatever it might be, but it's both parties becoming excellent listeners and excellent communications that will kind of innovate products that will ultimately help our patients. Now, when you think back, and I kind of asked this a little bit differently earlier, but Thinking back over your career, was there a pivotal moment, just in general, any technology from FACO to IOL to LASIK, dry eye, was there one or two particular moments that you felt made the biggest impact on the field or you know the care of our patients? Small incision surgery. I think that was a very big step forward with implants that were foldable. Because it was because of the foldable characteristic of implant that we could go to smaller incisions, which then helped the healing time, helped visual recuperation, uh, required no sutures. I would say that was one of the biggest pivotal moments. Yeah, I, I think that that's probably, I mean, you know, I, I haven't done many large incision <laughs> cataract surgeries, but the one or two I did in training, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm certainly glad that we have our, our small incisions, you know, especially with, you know, when you're talking about care of the cornea and, and ocular surface and not inducing more stigmatism than you were trying to correct. I think it's all been huge steps forward. So, uh, Cynthia, thank you so much for joining us. You know, it's truly just an honor to listen to you talk and tell your story. You've been so pivotal in so many of our lives and how we handle dry eye and perioperative uh, ocular surface. So thank you. I mean, seriously, thank you for all of your contributions and for really being kind of the guiding light on ocular surface disease just over the, the course of the last couple of decades. So thank you for that. And thank you for joining us on today's podcast. Thank you so much, Morgan, for having me. It's been an honor to be part of this program and to kind of go back in time, share the whole path and the history. So I'm delighted to be included. It's meant a world for me. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsors, in particular, uh, one of our founding sponsors of season one, Alcon, for helping to support this editorially independent content. And that concludes another episode of The History of Eye Care with your host, Dr. Morgan Micheletti. If you enjoyed this episode, 
please consider subscribing to the podcast on your preferred platform. Don't forget to follow us on social media to stay up to date with our latest episode information and to join in on the conversation.